Oh, yes, all aboard. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. This is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, where we bring you everything from high school sports, NCAA, NFL, NBA, HBCU. It's the train that is building up ahead of steam. So grab your tickets, get on board, enjoy the ride. Let this train take you on a sports journey. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Let's get this train on the track. Thank <laughs> you. 
now that's what you call doing something different on a podcast that was florida a&m university marching band doing on time god yes i know you who else would think to do something like that on a podcast as a lead in leave it up to me to do something different hey i said i want to do something different and different is what i aim to do so we got that out the way and you know what there's going to be more of that to come because i'm going to do my hbcu game day report bring you up to speed on some things that has happened and uh one of the things is another black eye for the sport as Howard university football game ends early after brawl but this is not going to be the only news we will have some more news that will uplift because there are actually games that were played they didn't have all the drama but hey you have to report the bad with the good right right so let's just get this out the way this was a game last week that happened so and then we will get to the turkey day classic alabama state versus tuskegee took place and so much more with the hbcu game day report so as it says howard university football game ends early after brawl howard university was up 56-6 against virginia lynchburg when a bench clearing brawl forced officials to call the game early Howard University football looked to be on its way to a blowout win to close out the 2021 season. But then things got ugly and the game was called early. A bench-clearing brawl in the season finale against Virginia Lynchburg, a non-NCAA HBCU, forced officials to end the game before halftime. Howard led 56-6 at that point. Howard Director of Athletics Kerry Davis issued the following statement on Saturday night. At today's football game between Howard University and Virginia University of Lynchburg, an unfortunate brawl took place on the field between student-athletes from both teams, necessitating the officials to end the game before halftime. The Howard administration and staff will review footage of the game and levy appropriate disciplinary action upon those whom we determine have violated the university student code of conduct. Regardless of who initiated or escalated the altercation, the actions of the student athletes in today's game do not reflect the values, principles, and standards of Howard University. Our athletic program insists that our student athletes exhibit the highest level of sportsmanship both on and off the field at all times. The disturbing scene witnessed on our home field on our home football field will be used as a teaching moment to ensure that our student athletes conduct themselves in the manner befitting our institution's legacy. The Howard VUL brawl comes two weeks after Johnson C. Smith in Livingstone College was called a no contest due to a bench clearing brawl. So that's an unfortunate set of circumstances that has hit the wire and we hope to get some of this stuff cleaned up so that our brothers in hbcu can put a respectable product on the field something that they would be proud of and not have to reprimand i mean last time i seen something this ugly was just last year in the bowl game between tulsa university and the brawl that ensued after that game that was very 
ugly looking site. So yes, we want to get stuff like this cleaned up. That way you can enjoy the games. Games don't have to be called because of fiascos like this. So like I say, this is a black eye on the sport, but I'm pretty sure Howard University will do a lot to get that cleaned up. Uh, those of you who don't know, Howard University is also known for having a legendary Hall of Fame style coach, one who was the first black coach in NCAA Division I history by the name of Willie Jeffries when he took on the job at Wichita State University, where I am actually podcasting from in the city of Wichita, Kansas. So his name is also linked to Howard University. So, yes, we want to keep that name, Howard University, in a positive light. So, moving right along, keeping up with the sports scene as to what happened. Like I said, there was there were some games that took place. In Alabama, around Thanksgiving time. Right, in Alabama, around Thanksgiving time. Yes, that was done on purpose. There was what's called the Turkey Day Classic. And we're going to effort pulling up sound clips from this, which I won't have to do much except just let it play. But we're going to give you that black college experience, okay? But it was the Turkey Day Classic play this past week between Tuskegee in Alabama State. University and Alabama State University. What's up, HBCU Game Day family? It's your favorite cousin from Mississippi, D. James, and I'm live in Montgomery, Alabama for one of the oldest rivalries in HBCU Classic history. Established in 1924, the Turkey Day Classic was a game that used to hold both of Alabama's most prestigious HBCU football powerhouses. But this year, both teams have not found the success that they both would like to. Alabama State comes in with a record of four and six, while Tuskegee my Tuskegee Tigers come in at three and seven. That hurts. That really hurts when you play for Tuskegee. Whoa. Okay, let's get to some football. Tuskegee came out trying to use the ground attack, but the Hornets had that sold up from the dough. Joe Owens Jr. got the start today for Alabama State, and they came out utilizing the ground attack as well. Throughout the day, we will see that Alabama State's ground attack was more successful than Tuskegee. Alabama State cracked the scoreboard first with a four-yard run by Ja'Cory Merritt. ASU 7, Tuskegee 0. As the game continued early on, you saw that the ASU team was ready to play on all three phases, offense, defense, and special teams. So when Tuskegee came back out, they tried to use the run game again. Williams tried to hand off to Patterson, and once again, the Hornets were right there to sting in the backfield. What's the Turkey Day Classic without a controversial call? So right here we had ours. And Tuskegee actually got this in their favor. A lot of Tuskegee fans say there is one call in particular from the past they wish that they can get back. Carl is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now he's free to play. So at that point, the controversy he's talking about is two players went up for the catch. The offensive player and the defensive player. And Tuskegee guy apparently looked like the ball really got ripped from him, but he was awarded with a catch. So now what we do is we 
get you back into these highlights. Tuskegee fans say there's one call in particular from the past they wish that they can get back. The Hornets defense continued to swarm. Right here, number 46, redshirt freshman Jake Howard, he got in the backfield and he caused a little havoc. He records the sack on the season finale. In the absence of all swag and All-American running back Ezra Gray, Alabama State didn't miss a beat on the ground game today. They used multiple running backs. Number 36 right here, Dontre Manley, he had two amazing runs, and he showed that he'd be in the weight room a lot. Alabama State capitalized on this drive, ending it with a six-yard pass from Owens to Joshua Knight. Alabama State goes up 14-0. Tuskegee ended up putting the ball right here, and they had good coverage. I only want to show this right now because later on, I think the coverage might have a breakdown. But that's later on, and we'll get to that. Right here, Owens drops back. He hits the UAB transfer, Tevin Sharp, with a nice pass, and he does the rest. He takes off. He takes all his energy that he has to make it all the way to the one. Tuskegee's defense stood strong, and they held ASU to just three points. After that, Tuskegee blocked the punt, and it turned into a safety, giving them two more points. And then ASU came back out and hit a 31-yard field goal to go up at half, 20-2. to two. At halftime, the Tuskegee Marching Crimson Pipers came out. We're at the halftime mark, and we're getting ready to hear some more sounds from a marching band. But at that point, yes, Alabama State is leading Tuskegee. So we're going to get you back into these highlights and let you hear Little sounds from the marching band. And they put on a show. And, you know, when we're at the Turkey Day Classic, we're in Montgomery. ASU as well put on a show. What a sight at halftime, but let's get back to the game. Coming back from halftime, Tuskegee got on the board very quick, scoring on a 43-yard pass from Bryson Williams to O'Neal. Tuskegee 9, ASU 20. In the second half, both teams made defensive adjustments, so the scoring kind of slowed up. Alabama State had Tuskegee pinned up against the one-yard line, and they forced a punt. Speaking of punts, I mentioned earlier, special teams was a big part of Alabama State, and nonetheless, they took one to the house. Number 87, Robert McMinn, fields the punt, and he has plans on going home to the house, to the apartments. He cribs the kick, 37-yard punt return. Alabama State goes up 27-9, but then a 31-yard field goal extends their lead to 30-9. Tuskegee University continued to put up a fight. Williams drops back and finds his receiver for a nice pickup. Tuskegee fumbled the ball, and it turned out to be a two-yard run for Ja'Cory Merritt. ASU goes up 36-9 in the fourth quarter. Dontre Manley put the nail in the coffin, though, in the fourth quarter with 50 seconds left. He had a 40-yard run to the house. ASU went up 43-9. to 
Strike the band up. Time to strike the band up. Cut the bus on. Your final from the 2021 Turkey Day Classic. Alabama State, 43, Tuskegee University, 9. Once again, it's your favorite cousin from Mississippi, D. James, and you're watching HBCU Game Day. So there you have it. Yes, I had to do that. Uh, nothing like getting it straight from the source. Nothing like getting it straight from the source. So we have, that was the Turkey Day Classic. And it's always nice when you can pull up something and get it from a different perspective besides me. And what I'm going to do right here is I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I will have some more news for you. So stay tuned. It is definitely the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. We are building up ahead of steam and rolling down the track. So let's say stay tuned. I will be right back with some more. So. Keep your seat belts on. This train is steady, building up steam. Corner is sponsored by The Health Connection, the best choice for alternative medicine and holistic healing. The Health Connection has two locations in Wichita, Kansas, 1709 West Douglas Avenue and 3101 North Rock Road, Suite 170. And they also have a third location at 1001 North Rose Hill Road in Rose Hill, Kansas. Check them out on the web at thehealthconnection.online or give them a call, 316-841-0003. Back to the show. Choo-choo. Hi, this is Tracy, host of the Moonstar Podcast, and you are listening to A-Train. Buckle up, baby, and enjoy the ride. Woo! Welcome, 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 welcome. It is the A-Train Sports Podcast. This is your host, your conductor, Anthony. Yes, that first segment was HBCU related, and I will probably get back to it, but there's been a lot that took place last week, weekend, 
anybody that's in the state of Kansas know that we wrapped up the football season by crowning state champions in various classes. Yep, that's right. 6A, 5A, 4A, 3A, 2A, 1A. Oh, and let's not forget 8-Man. Speaking of 8-Man, I have a special guest coming up to break down what he saw at the 8-Man games. Yes, that's right. Coach out there at Oswego, my good friend and good passenger on the train by the name of Matt Fowler. Coach Matt Fowler, that is. Let's get that respect on there. So, yeah, we're getting ready to break down these scores, give you these scores. And coming up here shortly, I will have my good friend Matt Fowler on to give me his insight on what he saw at eight-man football. I wasn't able to make the game. But what I did was I went to YouTube and was checking out what eight-man action is like. Very exciting brand of football. It is very captivating. Uh, If I can pin the term, when I used to work at a radio station and I used to be bored up and they have a racing show on. And they would always say, we'll save you a seat, but you only need the edge. That's what eight-man football is like. You can come grab your seat, but it will leave you on the edge of your seat. So, let's go ahead and get into these scores. Let you know who is wearing the crown in their respective class. That's right. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. So, what we have here in 6A. We always start out with 6A, game that was played at Emporia State. Highly anticipated matchup when the Blue Valley schools, they got some powerhouse teams up there. Yes, they do. So it was Blue Valley Northwest going up against those Derby Panthers. Coming in, riding high with an undefeated streak, coming in at 11-0. After disposing of Lawrence by the score of 62 to 28. Basically, they have a dynasty up there, Coach Brandon Clark. Hopefully, one of these days I can reach out and get him on my show as well, too. Keep this coach's corner going. But they ran into a buzzsaw. Blue Valley Northwest. As Blue Valley Northwest secures the victory and are crowned 6A state champs by a final score of 41 to 21. So Congrats go out to Blue Valley Northwest. Hopefully I can reach some of those people out there and get them on as well, too. So now we move right along to Iva, which was played at Pittsburgh State. And as I had last week, the privilege of having Coach Steve Martin on Pittsburgh State, a very storied venue with a lot of football history, rich in football history, Pittsburgh State. Dennis Franchione, the one who built that program. Anyway, Pittsburgh State University, the site of the 5A state title game, which pitted Mill Valley High School going up against just west of the city limits of Wichita, Kansas, Mays High School in Mays, Kansas, playing in their first ever state title game. Unfortunately, they came up just a little bit on the shorthand as Mill Valley gets the hoisted 5A trophy, coming away with a 28-14 victory. So congrats go out to Mill Valley. I'm pretty sure Mays will be back strong again next year. 
So now we move on down to 4A, getting on through here as we have our guest, Matt Fowler, coming up in a few minutes. And the 4A game was played. I'll get back to that. Let me back up here. Here we go. 4A. That game was played at Topeka Hummer Sports Park Football Stadium. And in that game, we've seen a matchup. St. James Academy, a school that hasn't been around that long, but have a powerhouse football team playing a murderous role schedule. They took on Bishop Miage. And hats off to Bishop Miage for coming in. They were a sub, basically came in at a sub 500. So that means they went through their bracket. I already ran to St. James, the buzzsaw named St. James Academy. And St. James comes away with the 42-19 victory. So they will be hoisting the 4A trophy with a record of 8 and actually let me back that up. St. James Academy just took on Andover Central. Excuse me. And still they came away. Andover Central came in with 11-1 record. And we knew about Andover Central because they're from around the area. However, they ran up against St. James Academy team that plays a murderous road schedule and plays some of the plays some of the toughest teams in the state. And they were battle tested as they come away with a 28-21 victory. So congratulations to St. James Academy on their 28-21 victory. They are the 4A state champs. Now we move on to 3A. That game was played in Hutch at Gowans Stadium. And in that championship game, we saw Frontenac, 10-2, going up against Andale. I believe it's those Indians out there. And Andale comes away with an unblemished record, 13-0 to end the season, blanking Frontenac by the final score of 53-0. Game was not even close. So congrats go out to Andale. I know Steve Martin is his alma mater, so. I know he's tickled pink about that. We move to 2A. And 2A is played at Fort Hayes State University, Lewis Field. Correction was played at Salina USD, 305 District Stadium in Salina, Kansas. And in that matchup, that 2A matchup, this was a game that Coach Martin called. He said Rossville. And Rossville took on Beloit. And Beloit is usually a powerhouse team as well, too. However, Beloit came up just short as Rossville ends their season on a perfect record, 13-0, winning by the final score of 35-12. to That was 2A, and now we move to 1A that was played at Fort Hayes State. And who do we have playing for the title in 1A? Well, just as soon as it comes up, we will get it. Now everything wants to freeze up on me. 
We'll get it. There we go. In the title game, 1A, Opie comes in, comes in with an undefeated record, going up against another team with an undefeated record, Inman High School. However, Opie walks out undefeated at a final score of 35-6, to hoisting that 1A trophy, which will now lead me into 8-man. And I am going to get my good friend Matt Fowler on the phone so we can talk a little bit more about this. And he should be ready to go at any minute. Hello. And do we have Coach Fowler on the phone? Yes, sir. Coach, I know you had an enjoyable holiday, and then you got to feast on some good football, didn't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was unable to make it because of my job uh, obligations. However, just to tease myself, and you you the one that told me about PBS, I was looking at the East-West All-Star game, I guess from about a year or so ago, and like you said, once you get to watching it, you'll forget you're watching an eight-man game. Very entertaining brand of football. And basically what that did was it just teased my appetite <laughs> to just want to get out and see it live now. So what can you tell us about the games that took place? Because I told people, I said, if you can't see none of the other classification games, go to Newton and get two for the price of one. So I know that first game was Little River going up against uh, Meade High School, and Meade gets to hoist that trophy, coming away with a 22-14 to 14 victory. So what can you tell us about that game? Well, uh, you know, first of all, two really good teams. They were both undefeated coming into it. Uh, you know, so that first game is the Division One game this year because, uh, as I told you last time we talked, there's two divisions. So right. uh, there's – almost a hundred schools that play eight man in Kansas, uh, just a little bit below that. But anyways, the top 48 are, are division one. And then, uh, they take the rest of them, they put them into division two. So they're, they're fairly equal, but there's a few more division one schools than there are division two. Uh, but anyways, this year, the division one game was first, they flip flop that every year. So, you know, the next year, the division two game will be first. So that game kicked off at 11 o'clock. Um, Mead is a school that this is just their second year in eight man. Uh, mm -hmm. They were a very good uh, small 11 man team. Matter of fact, they won state titles in 2010 and 2012 in 11 man. So uh, they were they were a uh, you know pretty well known uh, two slash one a uh, 11 man football team uh, program, and they so they came down into the eight man ranks just last year. Uh, I believe they only won four games. Uh, the year before so they had quite a turnaround this year uh, to make it uh, to the championship little river also was undefeated coming into the game uh, they were the defending state champs from the year before uh, and uh, really had had a, a a great turnaround there also because uh, you know that the season last year when little river won the state championship they actually started their season three and two uh, and then they rattled off you know all the way to the state championship uh, and, and won it the year before. So you had Little River, the defending state champs who were undefeated and had played a really difficult schedule to get there. Uh, as a matter of fact, 
they had rallied in their last two games in the quarterfinals. Madison, who's a very good team, had them down, it seems like, about 14 the whole game. Uh, and then they came back, rallied back to take their first lead of the game with about 50 seconds to go in that game. And then the next game, the semifinals, they played against Canton Galva, who's an outstanding team. They mm-hmm. actually have a K-State uh, commit that plays receiver for them, Tyson Struber. Uh, and he's just an unbelievably gifted player, jumps up and catches everything you throw out there. Mm-hmm. Tough guy to cover. And that game was a wild game, sort of like one we had. So that game entered the fourth quarter. And I want to get this straight. The final score of the game was something like uh, 70, 76 to 68. 76 to 68. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, in the fourth quarter of that game, uh, Little River, I think, put up 46 points Wow! in the fourth quarter of that game. They actually were trailing, I think, by, by 10 or maybe even 16, something like that. They were down two scores going into fourth and rallied to win. So, you know, that puts – both of those teams that played Saturday were, were very battle-tested. So – the game itself, uh, the, the game started off, Meade received the opening kickoff, and on their first play from scrimmage, uh, they busted uh, about a 45-yard run on a quarterback sweep to score uh, and take the lead 8 nothing. They made their two-point conversion. Little River then took the ball, and uh, they started a drive, but then they kind of stalled out. Meade took the ball over on downs around midfield again. And their second play from scrimmage, they called a, it was a fade. They had two receivers out there, and they – they ran a fade on either side. Uh, quarterback threw a nice ball. Defensive back fell down. Uh, Meade catches it and runs it in and scores again. So they scored two touchdowns on their first two plays of the game. Hmm. So they're up 16 nothing. And uh, seriously, I think only like two to three minutes have, have elapsed off the clock. So wow. it's 16 nothing, And you're thinking, you know, I've seen a lot of crazy comebacks a couple years ago. Canton Galva and St. Francis played for the state title. I believe this was in 19 and uh, St. Francis was ahead 36 to nothing in the second quarter. And then Ken Galva rattled off 66 in a row the other way and beat him. It's 66, 36 final. One of the wildest things I've ever seen. So, you know, you never know early leads kind of like in basketball, right? When you have games score, you know, sometimes a team that jumps out to an eight Oh run in basketball, sometimes that that's not a safe lead. So anyway, 16, nothing mead. And, uh, you, like you said, the final score, they only ended up with 22 points. Right. You know, they won the game, but they only – so that's how crazy the game was. It opened with some fireworks, uh, and then Little River kind of settled in, and they got a score. And then at the end of the half, so I, I believe it's 16-6 at this point, uh, Little River has the ball down inside the Mead 10-yard line, I believe, and they fumbled a snap, and Mead grabs the ball. So it's Mead's ball under a minute to go in the half and Meade, you know, they hit a, they hit a big pass earlier. They tried to go back to the air again and little river intercepted the ball and they ended up scoring. So that's what made it 22 to 14 at the half. And then that ended up being the final score uh, because both teams were scoreless in the second half, which honestly, I don't believe I've ever seen that happen in an eight man game. I'm sure it's happened before. Uh, you just haven't seen, it, uh... seen it. So... I haven't seen it. I mean, I've been to the last, this was my 11th straight year going to the state championship games. I know I've never seen it in a state title game. I don't know that I've seen it ever. Two eight-man schools go scoreless for a half. Uh, very so, rare. So, would, so. It, would, would it be attributed to lack of offensive execution, or did the defense for both teams just really 
show up and both teams were playing and had their pride on the line? Well, you know, both teams moved the ball in the second half pretty well. Little River, uh, they had two uh, key players get dinged up in the third quarter. Uh, and I think that really hurt them because Little River is, uh, you know, they're kind of a veer option, you know, kind of power football team. They, they like to run the fullback a lot. And their fullback got dinged up, and then so did one of their tight ends. And so they were kind of, they were kind of scrambling personnel-wise, moving guys around, you know, trying to figure out what they wanted to do. Uh, but both teams threatened down inside the red zone multiple times. In fact, uh, I've told you how rare field goals are in eight man, but Meade attempted two of them, missed them both, uh, and then uh, the game ended. So Little River had the ball. This thing was a game right to the end. Little River had the ball at the Meade seven with a first and goal with about 45 seconds left in the game. So, you know, they score, they get the two point play. We're going to overtime probably. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got it down into third down and uh, they had a, they ran a, a little, they had a little post pattern in the middle and the guy was open and the quarterback just kind of threw it a little bit too hot. He just put a little bit too much on it. And it, and the kid didn't, you know, he didn't end up making the catch. He was, he was actually, the uh, the fullback that had been injured but was still out there really gutting it out Braxton Lafferty is his name okay really tough competitor he jumped up tried to catch that ball and I just don't think he could jump up high enough on that injured leg to go get it uh, and so anyways you know Meade held and and ended up winning the game so I think I think the what, what I would evaluate defensively is that both teams made some great defensive adjustments. And both teams, you know, were able to move the ball, but the defense has stiffened up once they got into the scoring area. Okay. So, with that being said, that was eight-man division one. So, that game right there would be pretty much, well, that, I haven't seen the final score yet on division two, but I'm pretty sure there was some fireworks in that game as a little bit more scoring as uh, Axtell comes mm -hmm. away gets the horse up the division two trophy with a 44 to 18. So basically the first game was the appetizer. Second game would have been the full course meal. Final score 44 <laughs> to 18. Axtell ends their season undefeated. Yeah. And that game, you know, some, some interesting things about this game is that it actually was a rematch of week one. They, these two schools actually played each other in week one. And in week one, Axel beat Wheatland Grinnell 62 to 16. They actually beat him by the 45 point rule. So this was a rematch, which is rare, you know, at any level because of the travel distance. You know, you have a team from the, the west side and team from the east side of the state playing. But they happened to meet up in week one. So this was a rematch. Um, and Wheatland Grinnell, you know, they've had a major turnaround also. You know, uh, they, they've done a great job over there. Uh, getting themselves to a title game. It was the first time in school history uh, that they had played in a football state title game. Mm -hmm. Axel, Axel has a little bit more uh, tradition behind them. They, uh, they had last won a state title in 1993, but they had just been to the title game two years ago and came up short against Osborne. So okay. they had, they had been there. They've, they've, they've been close is what I'm saying. Uh, they Axel's an interesting story. They had uh, just one senior on their team this year, and uh, he wasn't—he wasn't even a starter. Uh, they started their whole team as non-seniors. As a matter of fact, I believe their two leading receivers are freshmen, 
Wow. Uh, they have a they have a junior quarterback who's the coach's son. Eric Detweiler is the quarter is the coach at uh, at uh, Axtell and does a he does a great job. He's been there quite a while, and uh, his son is the quarterback, and he's uh, he's an outstanding athlete. And uh, you know they run the ball, they throw the ball some, but their youth was was amazing. And here's another amazing thing for you, you know. Uh, so when you look at the classifications for this year, I think I told you the way that they classify football is. Uh, you take the ninth through 11th grade mm-hmm. and you, uh, you know, and they, they rank you there. And if you have less than 101, you can choose to play eight or 11. Okay. Well, anyways, the smallest, the smallest eight man school is Axtell. The smallest eight man playing school in Kansas is Axtell. They had 34 students. That was their count ninth through 11th grade, all four grades together. There's only 43 of them. Wow. I mean, they're one of the smallest high schools in Kansas, uh, and they're the smallest eight-man playing school in Kansas. And uh, so, anyways, that's an amazing thing to me about Axtell is, you know, they, they, they don't have very many kids to choose from. But so, the ones they have, man, are athletes. So, basically. You know, just an amazing thing. Right. So, basically, they live by the old cliche saying, big things come in small packages. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so we had, uh, <laughs> so we had, uh, yeah, so the game started off and, uh, Axel took the opening kickoff and they, they drove down the field and they scored their, their quarterback had a nice touchdown run. Uh, but Wheatland Grinnell, they kind of dug in and they made a game out of it. Uh, I believe it was 20 to 14 at half. And, mm-hmm. you know, before the game, a lot of people were talking to me and saying, you know, is this game going to be a 45? And, and honestly, a lot of times at state games, there, there usually are 45 point games. I mean, seriously, it happens quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but Wheatland Grinnell hung in there tough, you know, it's 20 to 14 and a half. Uh, they really, uh, they really battled all the way up to the end. Axel made five interceptions in the game, which is amazing to me. Uh, they had, they had, they picked off Wheatland Grinnell five times. Uh, and the, the, I believe it was a 10 point game in the fourth quarter. So, I mean, the game was, was in doubt until the end. I think I told you before, if you look at an eight man score and the margin of it is like 30 points or or so somewhere around in there, that was a great game for, for most of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just at the end, one team kind of pulls away from the other, you know, the other team starts to press a little bit, make some mistakes. And, you know, the field is small, the players get tired playing both ways. It's hard to tackle, you know? And so, a lot of times a team will kind of pull away at the end and that's what happened. Axel tacked on a couple late ones, but uh, you know, they were outstanding. And the thing about it is, you know, hats off to Wheatland Grinnell for being much more competitive in the rematch uh, and getting their kids there. They did a great job making adjustments and stuff, but man, you know, eight man division two has kind of been ruled by Hanover lately, which they're actually a league rival of Axel's mm-hmm. and Axel beat them twice this season, wow. you know, to get to the, the championship, they beat them in the regular season and in the playoffs and, and, you know, Hanover up to, up to last year, I believe they had played in, you know, five out of the last seven D two title games, something like that, or five out of the last seven, title games because a couple of them were in d1 because when i was at spearville and we won it we actually played hanover so they kind of you know they they've made a living at newton i mean people know who they are because they're there a lot okay and i really think that i really think that axel you know has a chance to kind of be that next kind of eight-man dynasty Dynasty, because of their youth and uh you know i think 
I think they'll be back, you know, because like I said, they had freshmen in key key spots. They'll return everybody next year, you know, and you never know injuries and stuff like that. It's hard to predict, uh, especially with them because they just, you know, they only got 43 students in their high school. They don't have a lot of depth, but uh, man, they have talent. And so I think, uh, I think Axtell, you know, they, they've won this one this year, but I, I think there, there may be more to come. I mean, they, they, they look awfully impressive. Right. Well, one thing I will say is congratulations to all the state champions that won. Uh, Axtell, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on board with you. I believe that's a dynasty waiting to happen. But at the same time, I'm waiting to see what Oswego do as well, too. <laughs> uh, and by the way, because I know the school name, I just don't know the team nickname. I never did get that info from you. We're the Indians. The Indians, all right. Oswego Indians. Okay, that way I could just I say the now I could, now I know. So, but coach, I want to thank you. Uh enjoy the banquet tonight. I know you got awards to give out, and at the same time, I know you also have a riveting speech to give out that goes beyond the playing field because you're molding young men to be productive citizens. That way, twenty years down the road, they can come back and say, "Coach, thank you." So, I want to say thank you. Short notice for being on the A Train Sports Talk podcast. Enjoy the banquet and hope that you had a very prosperous Thanksgiving, Coach. Hey, same to you, sir. And thanks again for having me on. Really enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed talking to you too. Once again, Coach Matt Fowler, the Oswego Indians. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right, we got that squared away the scores the champions and that's also incorporated with coach matt fowler being in the coach's corner which is sponsored by the health connection with three locations to serve you two of them in wichita at 1701 west douglas 3101 north rock road suite 170 and at 1001 rose hill road in rose hill kansas Stop by and tell Natalie that Anthony sent you. So what I'm going to do right here, I am going to go ahead and take a break. And when I come back, I will have some more to bring to you. So stay tuned. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor. Just want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. That's right, driven by you, the listener, who wants to support. So click on that support button down there. You have three options, 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. We'll get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast.
Welcome back. A Train Sports Talk Podcast. What a way to come back. Yes, it's that black college football experience, and you know it's all about the bands. But with that being said, this is a good way for me to lead back into my HBCU football report again. Yep, here's another segment for the HBCU. And I will be getting to some more. But let me just let the sounds of the band play a little bit, and then we will go ahead and give you some more news here. All right, I hope you enjoyed that as we get ready to do some more HBCU news because there were some awards that were passed out, and we want to get this to you. So, Welcome back to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Once again, I want to thank my good friend out there in Oswego, coach of the Oswego Indians eight-man football team, Coach Matt Fowler. Yes, he is deserving of the applause. They will be having their banquet tonight. So, once again, thank him for taking out time from his busy schedule, cramming it in. Appreciate you, Matt. Anyway, the HBCU News, the HBCU Game Day. Deion Sanders, SWAT Coach of the Year, and Glass repeats as the Offensive Player of the Year. Deion Sanders has been named SWAT coach of the year while several of his players including Shadur Sanders picked up awards as well. So, Deion Sanders now has one coaching award under his belt. Sanders was named SWAT coach of the year by the league on Monday. The Southwestern Athletic Conference announced its 2021 football postseason honors on Monday morning. The all-conference teams and individual award winners were voted on by the league's head coaches and sports information directors. Alabama A&M's Akil Glass was selected Offensive Player of the Year, while Florida A&M's Isaiah Land was tabbed Defensive Player of the Year. Jackson State's James Houston was named Newcomer of the Year. Jackson State's Shadura Sanders was, was selected for Freshman of the Year accolades. Offensive Player of the Year, Alabama A&M's Glass closed one of the most impressive careers in league history with a fitting final campaign recording 3,568 passing yards, 36 touchdowns, and 356.8 yards per game, along with 160.8 passing efficiency in 10 games. He recorded five games of at least 400 passing yards in fall 2021, including resetting the program's NCAA Division I era record with 462 yards in a single game. Additionally, he has been named one of the 25 finalists for the Walter Payton Award, representing the top player in the football championship subdivision, FCS, and was the first selection to the inaugural HBCU Legacy Bowl. Defensive Player of the Year, Florida A&M's Land 
was one of the top players in the nation this past season as he was selected as one of 25 players named to the Buck Buchanan Award finalist, finalist list. At the conclusion of regular season play, he led the nation with 25 and a half tackles for loss and 19 sacks. Land also added three forced fumbles, two pass breakups, and one fumble recovery. He was named Week 4 Box Turo Player of the Week after a three-sack performance. Land was also named SWAC Defensive Player of the Week after setting a Rattlers record five sacks versus South Carolina State. He recorded a sack or tackle for loss in 10 of the 11 games this season and recorded two more sacks in five games and did the same for tackles for losses in six games. Newcomer of the year, Jackson State's Houston concluded regular season play as one of the most dominant defensive linemen in the SWAC. During regular season play, he totaled 59 tackles, 44 solo, and 20 and a half tackles for losses for minus 125 yards. Houston also contributed 14 and a half sacks for minus 102 yards, seven forced fumbles, two fumble recoveries, one defensive touchdown, and eight QB hurries. The Tigers featured the top-ranked defense at the conclusion of regular season play and allowed just 13.8 points and 258.3 yards per game. Freshman of the year, Jackson State's Sanders had a stellar debut season for the Tigers as he has been named a finalist for the Stats Perform FCS Jerry Rice Award. At the conclusion of regular season play, he led the SWAC with a 68.7 completion percentage while passing for 2,971 yards, second in SWAC, 28 touchdowns, second in SWAC, and only five interceptions. Sanders averaged 270.1 passing yards, second in the SWAC, per game while leading the Tigers to an undefeated 8-0 record in league play and their first SWAC championship appearance since 2013. Coach of the year, Jackson State's Deion Sanders led the Tigers to a 10-1 overall record and a perfect 8-0 mark in SWAC regular season play. Under Sanders' leadership, the Tigers are currently ranked in the top 15 of the FCS coaches poll and are also ranked in the top 25 of the stats FCS poll. The Tigers claimed, claimed the SWAC East Division title for the first time since 2013. For his efforts, Deion Sanders has been named a finalist for the Stats Perform FCS Eddie Robinson Award. And what we're also going to do is we're going to give you a look at the all SWAC first team offense, which is, of course, led by quarterback Akil Glass, Alabama AM, running back Bishop Bonnet, Florida AM, running back Gary Quarles, Alabama AM, offensive lineman Keenan Forbes, Florida AM, offensive lineman Dallas Black from Southern, offensive lineman Mark Evans, the second, Arkansas Pine Bluff, offensive lineman Jonathan Bishop, Southern. Offensive lineman Drake Centers, Texas Southern. Wide receiver Abdul Fateh Ibrahim, Alabama AM. Wide receiver Oday Hilaire, Alabama AM. Tight end Kamari Averett, Bethune Cookman. The All SWAC first team defense. Defensive lineman James Houston, Jackson State. Defensive lineman 
Jason Dumas, Prairie View A&M, defensive lineman, Sundiata Anderson, Grambling State, defensive lineman, Antoine Owens, Jackson State, linebacker, Isaiah Land, Florida A&M, linebacker, Ontario Johnson, Bethune-Cookman, linebacker, Aubrey Miller, Jackson State, defensive back, Marquise Bell, Florida A&M, defensive back, Drake Cheatham, Prairie View A&M, defensive back, B.J. Bowler, Florida A&M, defensive back, Amari Hill, Robinson, Bethune-Cookman, all swag. First team specialist, place kicker, Jose Romo Martinez, Florida A&M, punter, Josh Sanchez, Arkansas Pine Bluff, return specialist, Isaiah Bowden, Jackson State. And that is You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and do this as well, too. We're going to go ahead and give you the all-swag second-team offense as well, too. Quarterback, Shadur Sanders, Jackson State, running back, Caleb Johnson, Mississippi Valley State, running back, Nico Duffy, Alcorn State, offensive lineman, Tony Gray, Jackson State, offensive lineman, J. Tyree Carter, Southern, offensive lineman, Danny Garza, Prairie View A&M, Offensive lineman, Jay Jackson. Jay Jackson-Williams, Florida A&M. Offensive lineman, Robert Alston, Alabama State. Wide receiver, Keith Corbin, Jackson State. Wide receiver, D. Anderson, Alabama A&M. Tight end, Jaron Johnson, Jiren Johnson, Texas Southern. The all-swag second team defense. Defensive lineman, Ronnie Thomas, Mississippi Valley State. Defensive lineman, Savion Williams, Florida A&M. Defensive lineman, Michael Badejo, Texas Southern. Defensive lineman, Deontay Williams, Florida A&M. Linebacker, Monroe Beard III, Arkansas Pine Bluff. Linebacker, Keontae Hampton, Jackson State. Linebacker, Tariq Cooper, Texas Southern. Defensive back, Chad Davis, Alabama State. Defensive back, Keontae Daniels, Mississippi Valley State. Defensive back, Darius Campbell, Prairie View A&M. Defensive back, Shiloh Sanders, Jackson State. All-swag second team specialist, place kicker, Garrett Urban, Grambling State. Punter, Garrett Urban, Grambling State. Return specialist, Darnell Dees, Bethune-Cookman. So there you have some more HBCU news. So what I am going to do right here, I'm going to go ahead and pause and take me another break because I've gotten a lot to you and I still have some more to come, quite a bit more to come. So as I go into the break, let's just enjoy the sounds of the band one more time. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor. 
just want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. That's right, driven by you, the listener, who wants to support. So click on that support button down there. You have three options, 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. We'll get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Adam. And we're cheering from the cheap seats, and you're listening to the A-Train Sports Podcast. Whoop, whoop! Welcome back to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast final segment. As I get ready to get the rest of my evening started, head out to work once again. But I'm tell you, I tell you what, I'm having a blast doing what I'm doing. Interview, Matt Fowler, couldn't ask for a better guy. Give me more insight on eight-man game. We've had two segments on. HBCU game day reports different music today and I always aim to do something different and unique so I hope you find that this podcast today was a very unique in its own way showing some love not only to the guys on the gridiron but to the ones that entertain the fans in the stand and keep the players hype that's right Black college fan. What an experience. It's on my bucket list to go check that out one day. Anyway, there is a particular trade rumor going around involving the Dallas Cowboys. And you might be surprised whose name has come up. And there's three destinations where this player could end up. It's not making a lot of noise, but I'm pretty sure once you hear this, you'll get your head scratched. And it will be part of my poll for Anyway, report came out last week. It read three Ezekiel Elliott trade destinations for Cowboys to free Tony Pollard. Number one on that list, Buffalo Bills have one of the more complete teams in the NFL, and they are in a position where they are expected to compete for the AFC title on a yearly basis. They have the quarterback in Josh Allen. They have the pass catchers, Stephon Diggs, Dawson Knox. And they have their stacked defense. Their biggest weakness is at running back. Buffalo's leading rusher on the season is Devin Singletary, who picked up 415 yards on 83 carries, entering their Thanksgiving game against the New Orleans Saints. Allen is actually the Bills' second leading rusher, as he picked up 340 yards on 61 attempts. The Bills need to make an upgrade at the position, especially if they want to win the Super Bowl for the first time of his career. Bringing in Elliott, could be exactly what the team needs to solidify that they are going to contend for years to come. 
That's one destination. And then there are some comments made. It says, Jerry Jones definitely need to realize the pathetic world's worst mistake he made in overpaying an overrated running back, Ezekiel Elliott. Elliott definitely needs to be traded in a heartbeat at the end of the season. Another player that also needs to be traded in a heartbeat. And he's definitely, oh, Lord. And he's definitely also overrated and overpaid. Plus, he continues to be consistent and inaccurate. That's Dak Prescott, Daffy Duck. Both players, as long as they have the money that they definitely don't deserve, will never have excellent performance. Injuries will always come up as an excuse. Jerry definitely needs to clean the trash out of the closet and trade any and all players that have horrible performances. Someone would write an article about trading Z. Not because I don't think Zeke shouldn't or couldn't be traded, but because what team in their right mind, and I use this term lightly, would want to trade for a running back in today's game who doesn't have much. Jerry Jones just doesn't know how to manage a team. No running back is worth most of the pie. The best teams have the best lines. Fact. Why did Jerry Jones give in to Elliott's demand for a contract extension? Elliott contract had not ended. He kept getting in trouble with the law and with personal problems. And how does he repay for his contract extension? He played horrible. He should have given the contract extension money back. He trade him. He is done and at this point should be cut. No way he is worth what he is being paid. But that's Jerry for you. 26 years and counting. Oh, stop ragging on Z. Try assessing your perspiring quarterback when he goes three and out in overtime. Real money player, that quack. The Dolphins trading for Ezekiel Elliott doesn't make sense. Therefore, the Greer, the Greer brain fart trust would go for it. A smart investment would to go after quality offensive linemen via either the draft or free agency. Too much wear and tear on Elliott. So those are comments in regards to one Ezekiel Elliott possible trade talk. But there is also more this. Buffalo was just one of the ones that came up. I can give you some more scenarios as well, which I... Excuse that mishap, which I am going to do. And then it will be part of my poll question because I want to get your feedback as to what you all would think. That would be in my poll question. And I'm just going to go ahead and let it out. Do you think Dallas would be better off trading Ezekiel Elliott? So Buffalo is one of the teams that come up on the list. So here we go. Seattle Seahawks. Seattle Seahawks are currently sitting in last place in the loaded NFC West division, and there are no signs of them getting any better. Questions about 
quarterback Russell Wilson's status with the team will resurface after the season, just like they did this past offseason. Seattle has wide receivers in DK Metcalf and Tyre Lockett. But how about adding Ezekiel Elliott to the offense? The Seahawks are going to have to find a way to keep up with the Los Angeles Rams, who have an explosive offense and a shutdown defense. That and the Arizona Cardinals sit atop the standings due to the play of the Kyler Murray-led offense with their plethora of big-name players on offense. If there is one team that is not afraid to use their draft capital to try and improve the team, i.e., Jamal Adams trade, it is the Seahawks. So, Buffalo, Seattle. Those are just two of the names that come up. Oh, but I'm sure there's more. And we will give you more as time permits. But right now we're looking at Seattle and Buffalo as two suitors. The question is, who would be the third? I've seen Miami's name on there. And I can understand why having Ezekiel Elliott in your backfield with a young quarterback would take some of the pressure and duress off of to a tug of Iola, if that is the quarterback they're going to go with. So those are just a few names floating around out there as far as possible Ezekiel Elliott trade talks. Nothing that has built up a lot of steam yet, but people write things. I look at it. I survey it before I put it out, and it's interesting. Me personally, I know for a fact Zeke is dealing with knee injuries. I think the best thing that can happen to him is rest. Let Tony Pollard be the workhorse. I think he's proven he can do some things. Now, there's some things he can. There are some things that he does. Or should I say there's some things that Zeke does that Tony doesn't do. But one thing Tony is good at is hitting that hole and finding that next gear. That was evident when he returned the kickoff back for a touchdown. And for the record, now, granted, no, Ezekiel Elliott is not no Emmett Smith, even though he gave us flashes his first few years. But the competent backup to Emmett Smith at the time, I believe, was Ron Springs. A good change of pace back. And if you look at in the NFL, one of the things I'm noticing, when you look at Cleveland, they have a two-back system. It seems to be working for them. Kareem Hunt, Nick Chubb. Can it work in Dallas? Not only can it work in Dallas, at times it has worked in Dallas. What's so unique about it is, usually, and a lot of people are going to talk about the money that Zeke is getting, and he's getting paid to do this and getting paid to do that. But at the end of the day, Zeke is also being paid to be a good teammate. You don't hear nothing of no animosity because Tony Pollard is getting more of the workload. 
Same with the receivers. You don't hear about the receivers fussing over who should be getting more targets. At the end of the day, the teams want to win the game. As Herm Edwards said, you play to win the game. So in this situation, and if you're looking for a playoff push, I would say give Zeke some rest. That knee is not going to get better as long as he's pounding. And Zeke, at best, is somewhat of a bell cow type running back. But I think a more rested up, healthy Ezekiel Elliott serves the Cowboys well. And since it said that the coaching staff or the medical training staff hasn't brought it up, I say shame on them. So maybe the real blame should be placed on the coaches and the medical staff. If you know your alpha dog of your running back is dealing with an injury, look at your schedule, find a few games, rest them, get them ready for the playoffs. I'd rather have a rested up Ezekiel Elliott, fresh, ready to bulldoze his way, than to have a banged up Ezekiel Elliott. I would say look at the schedule. How favorable is the schedule? You got the NFC East to go through, which I think is doable. Find a few games in there where you can sit him down, rest him, get him ready for the playoffs. Then you have a legit one-two punch at running back along with what you have on the corners. And by chance, the offense starts clicking on all cylinders. I mean, they're going to get a jolt and a kickstart with the return of Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb. So I think you can find the time to rest Ezekiel Elliott, give Tony Pollard more of a workload, and let's see how this thing plays out. But trade talks at this point in juncture, I think it's a little bit too premature. And you can talk about Jones overpaying all you want, but at the end of the day, you have your key players and key positions locked up. And I think this team is primed for a playoff run as long as they do what's right. So I would say to the medical staff, to the coaching staff, get your head out your proverbial, proverbial backside. Rest this guy for a couple of two or three games. Have him ready for the playoffs. So I want to know what your opinion is on that. So I will be posting this in a poll question. And would love to have your feedback. But right now, I am getting ready to bring this train into the station. Hope you have enjoyed today's podcast. I've enjoyed myself and hope you have enjoyed listening. I will be back later this week with more because a lot has happened and I can't cram everything into one podcast. But we're going to discuss Lincoln Riley's departure, how that hurts OU, how it helps USC. Ouch. Yes. And also we'll be taking a look at the college football playoff standings. Who's in right now? Who could possibly be out? Who do you think the final four will be? But until the next time, take care of yourself. A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. 
pulling the train into the station. Have a wonderful morning, afternoon, or evening, whatever time you may be listening at this podcast. Peace.